You want to get the right things done for your security program. Sounds simple. But what are the right things for you? What does done mean? And how are you going to get there? Rapid7 realizes more than anyone how hard this can be. While Rapid7's Insight platform offers you industry-leading vulnerability management and detection and response solutions, their focus is on understanding where you are so that they can help you get where you're going. Visit securityweekly.com forward slash Rapid7 to get started. Data protection is a top priority with today's work from home workforce. However, current data loss prevention tools inadequately protect data in cloud or SaaS offerings from insider threats. SecureCircle automatically protects data as it leaves SaaS services such as GitHub, AWS, and Salesforce. The protection is transparent to users and works with any application to persistently protect data, even source code. Secure your data with SecureCircle Zero Trust Data Protection. Begin your 30-day free trial by visiting securityweekly.com forward slash securecircle. Welcome to Security Weekly Virtual Hacker Summer Camp. I'm Paul Asadorian here with Dan DeClos, the president and CEO of PlexTrack. Welcome, Dan. Hey, thanks, Paul. Thanks for having me. Yes, nice to have you here and talk about purple teaming, uh, which is always a fun topic. But of course, yeah. it means different things to different people, right? And when I talk to my pen tester friends, you know, they talk about how every organization may do it slightly differently. So what is a purple team and what are the most important components, uh, in your opinion, Dan? Yeah, so I would say, you know, starting with the traditional sense that most, you know, penetration testers have been doing for a long time is that really technical assessment that is a collaborative assessment where you're sitting down across with the blue team or in a remote environment where you're being able to collaborate with the blue team and say like, hey, we're testing these things. Can you pick it up? Can you identify it? And it's a very valuable and important exercise to have in an organization. Um, and so that's probably the more traditional sense. Um, but as, as things progress, naturally, you know, uh, people will do different things. And so really, if you were to kind of abstract that away from this, the deep dive technical penetration testing, Purple Team is really anybody that's that's coming together from a, both a red and a blue aspect. So red being anything kind of proactive where you're, you're trying to identify gaps in the security of policies or controls of the organization. And then having the blue team really be able to collaborate alongside you with like, yeah, we were able to detect that or, okay, we weren't. So we're going to assign this as a ticket to whomever we need to go and resolve that problem. Yeah, it's interesting, uh, you know, like a regular pen test is more, the way I think of it is like a, a functional uh, or regression test, kind of like a hands-off QA assessment, right, of your network security posture, right? Like you're just going to hand it over to the red team, they're going to do their thing and create a report. And that's important as, you know, relating it to software, right, is as a functional test or a unit test or QA test, right, where the purple team is more of a collaborative exercise that is really testing processes, procedures, and your defensive techniques, as well as your team, right? And ability to collaborate. Did I capture that kind of yeah, exactly. And I, I mean, I think, you know, in some respects, it's a it's a more in-depth tabletop exercise, right? And we mm. always encourage those as you ma mature in your security program. And even early on, you know, you, you can conduct these types of assessments even internally. You know, you can, there's plenty of um, opportunities and, and platforms out there to actually collect the tests. And in fact, PlexTrack is releasing a Runbooks module um, this month to be able to uh, conduct these exercises internally or, you know, with in, in tandem with your external penetration testing team. But it's really important to be able to do this continuous assessment 
early on and being able to say like, here's what we're going to test, maybe take it in small chunks, right. execute it, be able to collaborate back and forth. And also from the blue team's perspective, be able to say like, Hey, if this were to happen, what's our escalation procedure? Mm. Who do we contact? When do we get PR involved? When do we get legal involved? These are all important questions that you have to train your team and all the stakeholders throughout the communication channel, uh, because it becomes so vital as as you do prepare for a potential breach or you know any kind of incident. And it, uh, we run into this when we test our own software, right? Is someone will find a problem, right? Whether it's a security vulnerability or misconfiguration during a purple team, or whether you know user finds a bug in software. And and I do this all. I'm guilty of this all the time. I'm like, I just want to just dig in and fix it, right? And that's <laughs> yeah. bad for a lot of reasons, right? And I know it's bad, and I still do it. But it's bad for a lot of reasons, right? You want to make sure you follow your change control process. You want to make sure you're documenting that this was an actual vulnerability. That here is the fix. And then this is where I'm going to implement the fix and that gets tracked. And it's wonderful to have a platform like PlexTrack to track all of that. And I highly encourage folks go out and get that product specifically for purple teaming so you can keep track of things, right? Because things may come back around, right? You want to have uh, this tracking mechanism, not have it be in a spreadsheet or email, but have it be in software so you can track that through the life cycle of we did this purple team exercise, we identified this thing, we fixed it, we pushed that fix, right? And be able to track that progress so if it gets backed out or whatever, uh, you can track it, right? Yeah, exactly. And also be able to identify whether or not that was that that particular finding has been identified in your environment before. Yep. And so now you have metrics on, hey, this is how many times it got reported. This is how long it actually took to get fixed. Um, and so now your security director or your CISO or even your board have more metrics and analytics on the trends of, are you making progress? How quickly are things getting resolved? And are you sticking to those procedures? Or, or where are the gaps that we need to really improve from a procedure perspective to get those trends like, you know, the, the mitigation timelines down so that as, as things get reported, they get resolved in, a, in an efficient manner, but also, you know, uh, don't break, you know, other things in the mm -hmm. process. And now, Dean, do you have um, links or, or uh, integrations rather with the attack simulation tools as well? We, we have an integration with Scythe, so mm -hmm. you can upload your Scythe information straight into PlexTrack, and those get recorded as, as um, activities that you can then go and add evidence to or make comments on, you know, or, or if they're not a finding, you know, remove them from the report. And then with, um, with our Runbooks module that's coming out this month, you can um, have all of that data stored within the actual engagement uh, before the report is created. So what's nice about the Runbooks module is that you can execute these activities and these campaigns uh, and and start to identify which activities were successful or not. Uh, and then you have additional metrics on, you know, here are the things that we're doing well, and here's the things that we actually need to improve. And those are the items that get reported as risks. Mm -hmm. And so the, the run book, explain uh, what the run book is, uh, I guess, uh, and how, sure. it, like, is a run book used by the testers or the blue team, or is it a collaboration? It, it can be both, right? So the nice thing is that, you know, we get a lot of requests for being able to, you know, execute a methodology for a specific engagement. Um, and, and even like from a consulting firm or just an internal red team's perspective, you may have like certain execution steps that you want everybody to conduct during the engagement. Like, here's mm -hmm. how we're going to test for SQL injection. And did you do these things? Or, you know, here's how we're going to test for privilege escalation. And did you do these things? <clears throat> so that's one use case for the, mm -hmm. for the runbooks. Uh, but we also are tying them into 
into the atomic red team and uh, MITRE ATT&CK so that you can conduct simulations based on APTs. Uh, so similar to uh, you know what you would see from uh, other you know purple team you know diving into MITRE. And what's nice about it is it does have this collaboration component to where not only can you can the red team go in and, and, and perform these execution steps and it's all documented and they can provide the evidence and the timestamps and, and everything like that. But then the blue team can also see that in, in tandem and, and be able to say like, yeah, we were able to detect this. Um, here's the here's the, you know, the Splunk logs or the IDS logs, or, you know, or the firewall logs, whatever, and, and be able to show like, here's the evidence for us of us actually detecting this. And then you can determine with the red team whether or not that actually needs to be included as a finding in the final report or mm -hmm. just, hey, this activity was executed and unsuccessful. Now, are the runbooks also like a template, right? So I create a runbook, I associate it with an engagement. And then after the engagement, I'm like, you know, I wanna go back and add a couple of things. You go back and update the template and then associate with a new engagement? Exactly. You can either update the original one or you can create a new one based off of that one. Yep. So like, say you have like this baseline of things you always want to include, but then from here on out, Hey, for these types of assessments, we're also going to add X, Y, Z. You can keep that original one and create a new one based off of it. That's great. It sounds like that's, you know, stuff I used to keep in spreadsheets and documents, right? <laughs> yeah. Right. And now we have it in a centralized repository, which is nice. Yeah. And yeah. I also love the integration with Scythe because uh, I love to automate things, right? And people get this kind of warped perception of automation, right? Like, I'm not saying automate everything with an AI bot and we all get to live on an island in Fiji. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is if in that purple team exercise, you know, you have a finding and you want to retest always that, that one to speak to your continuous assessment, right? I always want to test this XYZ attack path, right? You can customize a module in Scythe and add it in and then it gets fed into PlexTrack, right? And we can all work off of that same thing because we know things change, right? I push out a fix for something that fixes that particular attack path, but an update breaks that, that change gets backed out, that spins up a new system and it has that particular flaw, right? There's all these different things that we've actually talked about in vulnerability management that we have mm -hmm. to manage because things are not static. And that's why I love attack simulation coupled with your tool to have that continuous assessment. Yeah, exactly. I mean, the, the, you know, you know, early on in the cybersecurity days, at least when I got into security, you know, a lot of things were focused on that reactive continuous monitoring, starting to get to that state of like, how do we detect all of these things, you know, in a continuous fashion. And so as the industry has matured and grown, not only now are we, you know, in this continuous monitoring capability, but now we need to be in this continuous assessment capability. And that's really what, you know, what we're trying to facilitate across the board. And then, you know, partnering with groups like site to be able to say like, here, you can do this in a continuous fashion. And maybe it's just testing small things to start with, but that's how you you grow and, and show your maturity as you as you continue to progress. And I think it's really an important aspect for anybody starting a cybersecurity program, or if you're you know well along the way and have a mature program, you know, being able to show that we're testing things in a continuous fashion. I think it's important because you know, being a pen tester, I hated coming back a year later doing mm. the same exact um, assessment and basically writing the same report. Right. You know, and not being able to show that you've made you know, and, and even collaborate with the teams on making this progress. Mm. And, and that's one thing your platform does really well is allow for that collaboration and, and tracking, right. right? I really, I love to see long gone the days are 
pen tester comes in for a week, generates this massive report, hands it off to the team. Maybe they do some stuff, maybe they don't. Then you come back a year later and it's essentially the same thing. You know, that we need to get away from that in a big way. Yeah. And, and PlexTrack really enables that kind of constant uh, assessment uh, and looking at all of your exposures and tracking them. So. Yeah. And it's important that, you know, as organizations grow, they, they, they bring this capability in house and utilize the external teams for those, you know, those, uh, those annual assessments or those periodic assessments with the third party eyes, mm -hmm. but like you you need this capability in house and to, you may not, we're always going to have a talent shortage for that. So being able to utilize platforms like ourselves, like PlexTrack to be able to, to help assist in that, in that capability is important. And then utilizing something like Scythe where you can actually say like, Hey, you know, here we may not have a, a team full of pen testers, but we've got a couple really talented people that know what they're doing, and then can utilize these other tools to to augment that capability. And then you really show the progress that you're making from a continuous perspective year round. Then augment that with your external penetration tests or your external audits, and now you have an, a, a fantastic way to show your data. Um, through PlexTrack to anybody that's asking for it, whether that's a breach insurance provider, mm -hmm. your board, uh, you know, anybody that's, um, you know, a third-party risk manager, you know, anybody that's kind of one asking questions about how, how frequently do you test your systems? How do you fr frequently do you test your controls? You have all that information right here within PlexTrack. Yeah, and it's interesting if, if I was the, the customer, right, I'd have my pen test team use PlexTrack, deliver the reports, and then even cherry pick ones and say, hey, can you either show me how to configure Scythe or customize Scythe to repeat that attack, build it into PlexTrack, uh, so we can continually test this, this one thing, right? Uh, and I would sure. pick you know, some of the top things that came back in my pen test report. I'd engage with my pen test team to say, the external one, right? Like, hey, help me configure this, right? Uh, that's providing a lot of value, I think, to the customer. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I mean, the more you know, we talk about automation and the more the more you can eliminate the, you know, the routine exercises, you know, like copying and pasting out of documents. I mean, that, you know, that that wastes a lot of time. Yep. And if you can eliminate that, then you can really focus on getting the real security work done. And that's really where PlexTrack uh, thrives. Absolutely. Fantastic, Dan. Folks can learn more and get a free trial at securityweekly.com forward slash PlexTrack. Thanks so much, Dan. Hey, thanks, Paul. Great to see you. Stay tuned for more interviews on the Virtual Hacker Summer Camp coming up next. Welcome back to Security Weekly's Virtual Hacker Summer Camp. I am Paul Asadorian, and like many of you, you might have been wondering, well, at least I have, about the intersection of security and privacy operations. If you've wondered about that as well, you tuned in to the right segment. Here to help me talk about that is Gabe Gums from Spirion. Gabe, welcome. Welcome. Welcome to me. Thank you for having me on again, gentlemen. How you guys doing? You're, you're looking, I'm doing great. You're looking very tropical. I mean, I can't be in a desert, so I figured I'd be on an island, right? Right. I mean, why, why not? Las Vegas is kind of like an island in the middle of the desert, if you think about it, actually. <laughs> it is. It certainly is, yeah. But we're not yeah. there. We're virtual and remote, which is, um, you know, kind of a shame. I wish we could share drinks, Gabe, and stuff like that. Uh, no. Commiserate and cause trouble. I, I miss our weekly, a weekly, yeah, only a weekly, our, our yearly summer camps. Right, right. Yeah. Um, so we'll do it virtual like we have been doing uh, for quite some time now, uh, feels like forever. But uh, you wanted to talk about the intersection of, now, when you say security and privacy operations, it sounds like there's a privacy operations function. Is that, is that, is that true? Ooh, so that's a good question. Is there such a function? 
there is no like well-established function at the moment, you know, as we know it in the security industry. But what there is, is there's a whole lot of security operations folks starting kind of from the CISO down that are being asked to either now manage a bunch of privacy management tools and or fulfill other um, privacy technology functions, including responding to to, uh, to to privacy privacy risk. And some of those are more operationally in terms of like, so who actually responds to a DSAR? Do we have the data? Mm-hmm. Well, most of the folks operating that technology are largely in the security domain right now. And so by default of design, a lot of these privacy-related operational uh, duties are, are falling to them. If you look at like the NIST privacy framework, which just intermingles the security mm-hmm. uh, framework, it, it, it overlays a lot of these functions directly onto the security group. And so, yeah, the conversations that I've been having are, are curious, right? It's like, so who actually owns privacy operations, right? And who's actually performing the work? So if there's a privacy incident, which you and I could easily argue, every single breach that we've ever reported on was a privacy violation, right? Like mm-hmm. all of that bit sensitive data that belonged to you and I that found its way into the world, those were, those before there were privacy regulations were already privacy violations. There was just no, there was just no established body saying, hey, now you're going to uh, get a slap for that, right? So, right. yeah. Well, and I think it's interesting too, as I think about it, because there's, with privacy, right? I actually come up with three scenarios because I used to work for a university and that's the weird one. Like there's privacy of the students at the university, which are, they're kind of, they're part of the university, but they're also a customer uh, in a sense, right? Then there's the like external customers that use my product or my application or my social media network or whatever. And then there are internal employees. And I think those are three very different, uh, you know, privacy kind of things. Like when I worked for the university, if there was a celebrity or a famous person's child that was attending the school, we had to do separate stuff. And that, like you said, fell on an IT security sometimes, right? Depending on which configuration we had at the time. Um, But those are three different scenarios, Gabe, you know? They are. Universities are an interesting beast too, because your faculty, Mm. you've got, you've got university faculty that, are as I as I understand it because we've got a number of customers in this domain. Um, you know they they operate under different rules based on on their unions as well too, where they've got some very different privacy restrictions around what you can and can't do even with their systems. But right. if I take it to, to a more corporate side of the world, yeah, you've got customers and you have employees, and then you have employees that live in California versus employees that live in you know New York versus an employee if you're an international company that lives somewhere in you know maybe Germany or the UK or wherever it is. And so there are different rules even for all of those different uh, individuals, whether they are a customer or employee, and even then where they live. And, and so when you're protecting that data as, you know, just a, a, your run-of-the-mill everyday security operations person or security analyst, uh, a couple of years ago, we didn't really think about how we protect that information differently. Security is security. And you can't have privacy without security. But you certainly can't have... Uh, you can't have you can have security without privacy, right? Um, but you can't have privacy without security. So uh, again, if you can't have privacy without security, what is the role of the security operations analyst in this in in this world now? What what role do they play in segregating, applying different controls like sharing controls? Like how do you make sure that data isn't being shared with the wrong people? Because 
you know, sharing controls internally. Those are oftentimes functions of, of uh, you know, IAM technologies and staff. Mm. So how does that change now when you have a different requirement around sharing that data with third parties? Because I revoked my consent because now I'm allowed to revoke my consent. Well, right? yeah, like, and those changes several years ago. And those changes are very interesting, right? I, I think, you know, 20 years ago, right, if we're working in IT and we thought about, well, I'm, you know, I'm storing people's names, maybe their phone numbers and email addresses. As a security person, you're like, yeah, like I can look at a phone book and get most of that. Like, you know, not a big deal. Fast forward to today. Well, wait, now we have to really protect that data. And how we protect that data, what lengths we go to protect it. And again, it goes back to your, like, where do they live? What is their role in the company? Uh, and how do we get educated on this, right? To even know as a security person, like, what's the classification of that data, right? We just used to kind of make it up as we went. It's a lot more formal now. It's a lot more formal now. How, where do you go to get that information is mm. exactly the first step. It's like, all right, so you, you're telling me that there's already a, a law in place that mandates I have to perform these activities. So where do I even go to get the information to understand what I have to do? Um, I'll tell you that I haven't had a conversation with uh, CISO in the last eight months where there wasn't a privacy officer on the line at the same time, too. And not because it was some kind of oversight thing. This was more just, you know, them working together because they can't they can't go it alone. The privacy officer can't go it alone any more than the security officer can go it alone. Um, and the privacy officer doesn't have any any staff beyond just kind of, you know, legal representations, et cetera. Mm. Um, and, and it's all of the IT and security staff that maintains the environment where the data is that this is falling to. Right. Well, because the, the regulations change. It, it was interesting. Going back to my university example, right? And I had to look it up because I had a mental block. I couldn't remember. When I got there, I was like, wait, how do we handle student data? Because, like, this is new to me. I hadn't worked for university before. And they're like, have you heard of FERPA? And I'm like, uh, God bless you. <laughs> like, what? what? What is FERPA? Right. And I'm like, oh, there's a guideline and a standard. I'm like, no, oh, I, I can, I can, you know, yeah, I can get this. Right. But in a lot of those cases, we may not have that formal of a standard, right? That's been around. I mean, FERPA was 1974, according to the internet, right? Uh, yeah. So we knew that going into it, but now we've got all these GDPR and all these things that are changing, keeping up with it. I can see a role of privacy operations dealing with the changing laws, dealing with all of the different personas that you have to deal with that live in all of the different locations, right? Someone to keep it all straight and work with the IT and security teams and developers talk about how we what lengths we need to go to to protect what data yes and you're right some folks have been i'll use the word lucky mm. that things like FERPA have existed for that long and so there were some guidelines that that already govern that if you happen to have been working with student data if you're working with healthcare data you know hipaa has been around mm -hmm. since the 90s so you've had that guidance also if you're in the retail space or the technology space there, there was no such thing right. there's i mean even pci PCI is not about protecting the privacy no. of a cardholder. No. It's about protecting the security of the cardholder data. Mm -hmm. It's literally called a cardholder data environment. There's, there's no, there was no thought about protecting the privacy of whether or not, uh, you know, what, 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 what were Paul's buying habits on Amazon anyway? What's, mm. what's all of these? Uh, what Paul's got some very interesting shopping habits there, right? Like that was more of a, that's more of a privacy concern if you don't want that data accidentally getting out versus versus a security breach where, you know, your credit card may have been, may have been taken. I don't know that even in like the news, we've heard much about 
some of the other data that has been taken in those breaches. Like, I'm willing to bet if we go back in time, rewind the machine and go back and look at some of that data. When we were all concerned about, oh, no, a credit card got out. Oh, no, uh, you know, an email address got out, a password got out. Did did any of your shopping history also get out? Because mm. no one looked at that and thought, ah, shopping history is, you know, there, there was nothing security related with that. But certainly something privacy related there that that also made it out. It'd be interesting to take a look back in, into the Wayback Machine, if you would. Not right. The, not the Internet Wayback Machine. But, but the, you know, yeah. also, you know, the privacy of that data and the ability to monetize it are two different things, right? Obviously, my, you know, healthcare information can be monetized a lot of different ways, right? My shopping history, all right, yes, but how do you, you know, how does an external third party monetize that? Amazon can monetize that, right? But if it's leaked out, how do other people necessarily monetize it, right? And I don't know if that plays into it. I still feel like it's a privacy violation. It should be protected, but there's also kind of the, like, what people do with it if it is made public. I mean, I'm not going to give anyone any ideas, but I'm going to give them ideas. So what if a bit of ransomware hit your machine and it was like, hey, if you don't pay, I'm going to let everyone know about all these other things you've been out here buying that uh, might be a little salacious. Right. You don't, you don't really want me posting that all in your Twitter feed, do you? Yeah. I don't need people to know I bought a 55-gallon drum of lube or anything like that. That was last week. <laughs> That's right. There's been You're one here in the studio. It's a, it's it's a joke. Anyway, <laughs> yes. Yes. yeah, no, it's, it's a lot of things where we think about. Yeah. And that's one of those things I hear from a lot of folks. There's like, but why do I care about that information? Right up until I, I, I make a statement like, well, would you be okay with me just posting it everywhere? Then? Right. Yeah. But you're also right. Monetizing it is a huge deal. And so from a, from a, a, a competitive standpoint, getting my hands on, on, on shopping history data is a big deal for for competitors and everything from understanding where you source your goods and and, ha- and what price you get them yeah. at is a huge competitive advantage to understanding no, you're right customers buying habits those mm-hmm. those are massive yeah it is very different yeah i i can see the as we talk right the role of privacy operations now being uh increasingly important especially in today's landscape for sure, and, and I haven't even begun to touch on all of the intersections that 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 I've been uh, that I've been looking at because there is there is so there's so many things that we've developed over the years in our security operations that are still so very nascent in the privacy world that I, I don't think um, you know folks have really started understanding what to look at and where to look at you know understanding health and time series data from a network perspective. That's that's that something we've always been looking at. Threat intelligence data, something we've been looking at. Um, but understanding the flow of consent data in, into our organization, you know, that that's not something that we're really putting directly against that same data set right now as well, too. So um, there's a lot to go there still. Uh, yeah. Yeah, I think there's a lot that can be you know misunderstood or taken for granted. You know, uh, especially even with things like your phone number, like if you bought a car and registered a car and this happens in different ways, right? Like all of a sudden you're getting calls about your warranty. You're like, wait a minute, how did you, was there a consent form somewhere in all that paperwork that I, that I filled out and you become more conscious of it, but it's too late, right? Like essentially like you got to change your phone number right? once that yep. stuff is, is out. So how do we, you know, help the consumers get 
ahead of it by establishing the privacy practices within our organization and doing that as early on as we can. Because once the cat's out of the bag, it's out of the bag, right? And there's no putting it back in. This may be the one time where you hear me say, I think the consumer side of this is ahead of of, uh, the technology and the security side, which is kind of rare, right? Which is which is a byproduct of things like GDPR, CCPA. It's given the consumer that power mm. to to own their own data. On on the so so let me let me kind of break it down a little bit more discreetly, if you would. On the security side of uh, on the security side of of operations, you've traditionally had things again like your monitoring, your analysis, your orchestration, automation, and your monitoring side of things. You know, your monitoring access, you're you're doing you know threat detection, patch management, the analysis side. You're looking at user entity behavior um, uh, alerts. You're looking at, in case of compromise, you prioritize those alerts. You're orchestrating and automating your incident containment, your system isolations, your remediations, all of that good stuff. On the privacy side of that, you've got kind of three general areas there, too, right? You've got your data collection intelligence, right? So you use a consent and preference data. That's the, Those are capabilities that we've already established and are, and are implementing technologies to give the consumer access to the 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 flow of data throughout our environment right so again collecting data intelligence around that data behavior activity we, we have a lot of that i think we're just not looking at it from a privacy perspective yet mm. then you've got all the data processing enforcement you know how do you enforce all those things from operationally right so how do you enforce um that data in use and making sure you do things like anonymize that data when i say you can no longer use it um you know you can't share that with the third party to to learn more about my buying behaviors, et cetera. But you still need to process that data, so you may need to anonymize it. Mm. On the data security governance side of things, then you've got all of your privacy impact analysis stuff and, and all of your access governance uh, it, uh, controls, which, again, already bleed into your security world. So th- these things are all o- overlapping each other. Um, and I can go on and on and on and on and on, but uh, you know, ultimately the, the, the trends I'm seeing is a lot more of of privacy making its way into security operations. And I've been joking, you know, we're going to need to evolve from just security operations centers to security and privacy operations centers. So you're going to have to go from a SOC to a SPOC. You can go ahead and rimshot me whenever you want there. Where's Johnny with the rimshot? But but that's a natural progression in in the world we're in right now. Mm. Yeah, and, you know, it's, it's really interesting when we think about all this data and we come to the conclusion that we don't want to store as much of it as we thought we wanted to because of these regulations. I think that's a really a big positive in my mind, right? Because it's eliminating the risk on both sides of the equation. I also think it's, you mentioned PCI. I think it's one of the things that really helped um, disrupt the Carter's markets of the world is basically people go, oh, I don't need to store every credit card transaction that I've done in the past 10 years. Oh, and PCI is making me do this. And that made it a little harder for, for the carters to, to do their evil bidding, right? Um, yeah. And I think with privacy, it's the same thing. I think it's going to be harder for corporations to justify storing that data and maybe abusing it or have a third-party actor break in and then steal the data and abuse it, right? If they're going, yeah, you know what? It's not even worth storing it anymore. I think that's one of the positive things. Uh, of regulation and I think something a uh, uh, sec- privacy operations needs to advocate for is storing less. You're not wrong. I think your bigger business challenges organizations do not exist for the purpose of processing that data. They process that data to exist. And so they're going to want to process it, right? Mm. You, if the way you, if the way you 
find new customers is by understanding the buying habits of existing and old customers, you'd want need that data. Mm-hmm. If I tell you to, to, to get rid of that data because you didn't originally collect it for that purpose, well, then how do you find new customers? That's just one very minor example. I mean, there are some there are some legitimate answers in there again, right? Like you can apply apply differential privacy controls to it, et cetera. Yeah, because um, you can anonymize so it, right? I mean, yeah, yeah, because you take out the the PII from it, right? You decouple it from the person. Like you could even store like where they lived and what their buying habits were and all that stuff. Uh, but now it's just disassociated from that that person. Easier said than done. You're I was going to say right. that I make that sound really easy, right? It's really not. <laughs> And, and enter now new types of attacks. Mm. Enter now re-identification attacks. They're mm-hmm. not new. Mm. I mean, re-identification attacks are, are easily, I want to say the first academic research on it probably goes back 20 years. But in practice, it, it really mostly affected healthcare data because there was a lot of publicly available research, healthcare research data, right? And even that information, you have to be careful. If I de-anonymize that data and the only thing left is uh, in this zip code, there are two men that have this medical issue and they're between this age age range age range that might be enough to de-anonymize it unless there's only 10 men in that zip code mm-hmm. right? i'm oversimplifying right. but then it starts getting really easy for me to start whittling down and re-identifying that person or i start collecting multiple data sets where i can take yeah. one data set of the identified information in another and start correlating back to each other to start re-identifying individuals so you know, you, you will start seeing these types of privacy attacks where a, a bad actor doesn't necessarily break into your your data stores any longer just for the credit card information. But what I'm looking for now is enough information to help me re-identify individuals from a much juicier pile of data that I got so I can go back to all of the other nefarious activities I did, whether right. that's, you know, carding or, 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 or phishing or phishing. whatever else it is. Yeah, because so I, I can see... Well, you know, taking social media data and overlaying it with those various sources. And, you know, then it's basically game over because no one shares their personal details on social media, right? Oh, no one. <laughs> Where they live, what high school they went to, all of that. Absolutely no one. Right. And, yeah, and there's no ways to get that data, of course. Uh, <laughs> there's no APIs to that stuff. No checks you can write just to one company that will Or that, too. Yeah, I mean, if you're willing to pay for it, yeah, you can get there quicker. Yes, yes, you can. Yes, you can. So now you've made me truly paranoid that I don't want any of my data anywhere. (laughs) It's basically (laughs) what it comes down to, Gabe. And rightfully so. That's really how we should present this topic, right? My work work here is done. (laughs) Mm -hmm. But having said that, it's really hard to get your data removed from all of these sources. Yeah, it's like a pool, right? Once once things get in, it's hard to to get it out. There there are... there are mechanisms, if you would. That's, that is to say there are, there are combinations of both techniques and technologies. Yeah. Because um, neither one of those things by themselves will do it that can help you achieve uh, uh, an increased state of data privacy um, while maintaining the levels of data security that we have today. Uh, and even in some cases, increasing the levels of data security we have. Um, while increasing data privacy, like, and what some of that starts with just eliminating some of some of our old bad practices, like you know, just encrypting everything. Like, encrypting things is a security solution. It is not a privacy solution. It has yeah. done nothing for for the the privacy of the information w- within. Because so. at some point, someone's got to decrypt that data, or some machine or uh, application has to decrypt it. Right, and it's basically what it boils down to. Usually, what happens, mm-hmm. and or you know, yeah, it, it, 
ends up having to be shared or some, something along those lines. Yeah. All, all of those are real world scenarios. Um, talk about what's happening uh, at Spirion to, uh, to close us out. Give us an update. Wow. Man, it's been busy. It's been real busy. So let's see. So we've launched a couple of new products. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that happened. Um, we launched a new SaaS product service. So folks should go check that out. Um, Data Privacy Manager. Um, mm-hmm. Don't sh- tell everyone, in fact. Uh, we, we've got a couple more products launching later this year as well. Um, so, you know, we've been very busy. We've, we've been working with a lot of, of technology partners to to help, you know, kind of bolster the, the overall ecosystem of, of our customers and and their, uh, and all these new challenges that they have around data security and data privacy. Uh, so we, we've, we've got uh, some research that we're going to drop later this year on this topic as well, too. So we've been We've been really digging into the data and trying to understand what's out there and what's being exposed. So you folks should certainly sign up for the newsletters and, and, and keep an eye on that. We launched uh, we launched a podcast. That yes. happened also. Um, Privacy Please. So folks should certainly check that out. Um, what else is going on? Man, there's just so much going on. Yeah. Drop by Spearin.com. Drop by at Spearin on Twitter. Um, we've, got a, we've got a virtual booth up at Black Hat this week as well, too. So. So we're out there taking questions and then doing some demonstrations of the new technologies that we've got. Uh, yeah, and, and again, sign up for the newsletter. Keep, keep, keep an eye on, and keep an eye on us. We've got a lot of exciting things still to come this year. Outstanding, Gabe. Thank you so much for appearing on Security Weekly. Thank you for having me, Paul. Folks who want to learn more can go to securityweekly.com forward slash Spirion. That will conclude, uh, I think. Spirion BH. I knew that. Securityweekly.com forward slash Spirion BH. Look, there it is right on the screen in front of me. Uh, Thanks for tuning in, folks. We'll be back tomorrow. Stay tuned.